Listen for the Trinity in this verse, Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. J.I. Packer says the Trinity is the basis of the gospel, and the gospel is the declaration of the Trinity in action. Welcome to the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. Today, we are talking about the Trinity. Now, if you ever have uh, questions or comments, you can email me, doctrine4doxology at gmail.com, and that's doctrine, the number four, doxology at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin. Now, I want to mention a, a resource. Of course, we're, we're walking through a book, and each week is sort of loosely based on uh, a, a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Great Doctrines of the Bible. Uh, this week, we're talking about the Trinity, and another huge resource for me is a book by Dr. James White, and it's called The Forgotten Trinity. The Forgotten Trinity, it's so far my favorite book on the Trinity. I think James White does a great job of explaining and or defining terms and, and helping you understand what the doctrine of the Trinity is, and then he shows a lot of biblical proof for the doctrine. So I just really like his approach to uh, explaining and defending the doctrine of the Trinity. Also, he has done a, a lot of debates on the Trinity with Muslims, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. So he's he's debated the topic in several different ways, and so he he knows where the arguments are, where the you know what the difficult passages are, and he addresses those in that book. So uh, the Forgotten Trinity by James White. Now, he starts off his book. This is probably the lengthiest quote I've ever read on this podcast, but it is very, very good, and I think it gives us a great foundation of how how we should approach learning about the Trinity. So this is the like the first thing you would read if you started this book, The Forgotten Trinity by James White. Chapter 1, okay? He says this, I love the Trinity. Does that sound strange to you? For most people, it should sound strange. Think about it. When was the last time you heard anyone say such a thing? We often hear, I love Jesus or I love God. But how often does anyone say, I love the Trinity? You even hear, I love the cross or I love the Bible. But you don't hear, I love the Trinity. Why not? Someone might say, well, the Trinity is a doctrine and you don't love doctrines. But in fact, we do. I love justification, or I love the second coming of Christ, would make perfect sense. What's more, the Trinity isn't just a doctrine any more than saying, I love the deity of Christ, makes Christ just a doctrine. So why don't we talk about loving the Trinity? Most Christians do not understand what the term means and have only a vague idea of the reality it represents. We don't love things that we consider very complicated, obtuse, or just downright difficult. We are more comfortable saying, I love the old rugged cross because we think we have a firm handle on what that actually means and represents. But we confess how little we understand about the Trinity by how little we talk about it and how little emotion it evokes in our hearts. 
Yet we seem rather confused at this point because most Christians take a firm stand on the Trinity and the fundamental issues that lead to it, the deity of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit. We withhold fellowship from groups like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses because they reject the Trinity and replace it with another concept. We hang a person's very salvation upon the acceptance of the doctrine, yet if we are honest with ourselves, we really aren't sure exactly why. It's the topic we won't talk about. No one dares question the Trinity for fear of being branded a heretic, yet we have all sorts of questions about it and we aren't sure who we can ask. Many believers have asked questions of those they thought were more mature in the faith and have often been confused by the contradictory answers they received. Deciding it is best to remain confused rather than having one's orthodoxy questioned, many simply leave the topic for that mythical future day when I have more time. And in the process, we have lost out on a tremendous blessing. That would describe me when I first you know, wanted to learn about the Trinity, that, that, that right there. It's, I had always just kind of put it off. It's difficult. I, I don't really understand it. If someone asked me as a Christian why I held to the doctrine of the Trinity, I could not have clearly told them why. And so uh, as, when I picked up this book and started reading it, that captured me. Um, and and maybe it did you as well. And so uh, that's what I, that's why I wanted to share that lengthy quote there, um, because hopefully as we talk about this, this is this is going to be very basic information about the Trinity, and and certainly you can get the Forgotten Trinity by James White and and learn a lot more. Um, so anyway, let's let's get going here. We are on sacred ground. Discussing the Trinity is the peak of the study of God. We cannot fully explain the true nature of God. We cannot comprehend God, but we can apprehend what is given to us in Scripture. I started this whole series off talking about Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so, God has revealed himself in Scripture, and we want to affirm all the truths that God has revealed in Scripture. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but that word is simply used to describe certain truths which are taught in the Bible. Now, I am a biblical Trinitarian, and what I mean by that is I am not a Trinitarian because I must be aligned with some church council in the past. I am a Trinitarian because I cannot see how to read the Bible and make sense of it any other way. So nobody would make up this doctrine of the Trinity, but it's okay to not completely understand God. He's God. So I actually, if you think about it, I would have a bigger problem being able to fully understand all the things of God. That that would be a, a bigger issue, because if you can fully understand God, then what sets him apart from you anyway? So, uh, so that's that's kind of our our groundwork here. Um, we want we want to look at Scripture, look at what God has revealed about Himself, and affirm those truths. And I think when you do that honestly, you will be a Trinitarian. Okay, so, and, that, and that's why I am. So, a, a definition of the Trinity. This is from the Forgotten Trinity by James White. This is the definition he gives, and it, obviously, I think it's a good one. Within the one being that is God. There exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons. Uh, 
namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again. Within the one being, that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to note immediately the difference between being and person. So we are not saying that the Trinity is one being and three beings, and we are not saying the Trinity is one person and three persons. The Trinity is one being in three persons. So what is the difference between those words, being versus person? Uh, One of the easiest ways, I think, to think about it is being, you need to ask the question uh, or, or think about what is something. So the being of God would would be his essence or his nature. What is it that makes up God, his his being? Okay, so think of that, that word, what, okay? For person, think of the word who. Ask that question in your mind, who. So being is what something is, and person is who something is. So one way to think about it, what am I? I am a human being. So I am I am made up of the same stuff that other human beings are made up of. So what am I? I'm a human being. But who am I? I am Barrett Martin. Okay? So that's that would be the the difference there. So let's think about some things that have being but do not have person. A rock is a it has being it is it is made of something okay and there are other rocks that are composed of the same thing so what is you know if i was holding one in my hand and you said what is that i would say it's a rock but it would be very strange if you said what is that in your hand and i said it's a rock and then you said well who is that in your hand we would be like um what are you talking about because rocks are not they don't have person it, they have being, okay? What is it? It's a rock, but it, it's not personal, okay? And so that, that's another way to, to think about the, the difference in being and person, all right? So given all of that, there are three foundations that we have to keep in mind for the Trinity, and these are taught in Scripture, and that's the majority of the episode today is going to be defending these three foundations from Scripture. So the three foundations of the Trinity are this, monotheism. There is only one God. Trinitarians are mono, meaning one, and theist, God. So we believe that there is only one God. Now, there are three, so that's foundation one. Foundation two, there are three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And foundation three is the persons, the three divine persons are co-equal and co-eternal. So you can see how these three foundations are essentially you know, found in the definition as well. So let's walk through these three foundations. First off, monotheism. There is only one God. James White says uh, about this, that God chose to begin his revelation of his truth, not by arguing for his existence, but by asserting that he alone is God, the creator of all things. And this, of course, is a reference to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, right away, we have this word God, Elohim, that is plural. 
But why is it translated God? In the beginning, God, singular, created the heavens and the earth. Why is it translated singular and not God's with an S, plural? It's because the verb created, so in the beginning, God created, that verb there is singular. And so that's why God is is translated, even though God is the plural word, it is translated as singular. So there are lots and lots of different um, opinions on why this is the case, and I'm not going to get into all of those. Uh, but in the very least, we have some sense of a plurality within a, a oneness as well, okay? And that's in the very first verse of the Bible. Now, there is, again, just to establish this, this foundational truth that, there, that the Bible clearly teaches monotheism. There is only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And every faithful Jew would have woken up in the morning and recited this. It's, it's the first part of what's called the Shema. Now, so that's, that's very clear that there is only one God. Um, in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, there are tons of verses that we could use uh, to, to defend this. But basically what is happening here, um, James White calls this, this section of Scripture, the trial of the false gods. And so what's happening here is the Lord is questioning the false gods that Israel was worshiping. And God, in questioning them, it, it's essentially a lot of rhetorical questions um, and and God is displaying His own power, proclaiming to Israel that He alone is the one true God. So this is a wonderful devotion time to to just sit down and read Isaiah forty through forty eight, and and just think about uh, what God is saying about Himself. But let me give you a, a few verses here. Isaiah forty three ten says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. That is very clear. There's only one true God. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses." Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So he asks here, is there a God besides me? And then as a, a, a way of talking about himself, he calls himself the rock. There is no rock. I know not any. So there is only one God. There's no God before and there's no God after the one true God. Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? So this here is talking about a concept that that we've mentioned before, the aseity of God. God is not dependent on someone to teach him 
anything. Who, you know, so it says, you know, who has been the counselor of the Lord? And the obvious answer, again, these these questions are rhetorical. The obvious answer is no one. Uh, one more verse, Isaiah 40, 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? So monotheism, there is only one God and there is no one, th- th- nothing else is like God. He is completely holy and unique. So it, that is the clear teaching of Scripture. He is God is the creator. He's eternal from everlasting to everlasting. He is sovereign over all things and declares the end from the beginning, and He alone is Savior. The doctrine of the Trinity does not compromise any of these truths. Trinitarians are monotheist. Now, Foundation number two, there are three divine persons. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So here we can think about being and person. There is only one being of God. There, there are not three beings that are all like each other. So, so there's if I had two other people here with me, that would be three human beings Okay, so you'd say, what is in front of you? Three human beings. And who is in front of you? And it would be me and two other people that have person. So that's three beings and three persons. Okay, what we're saying with the Trinity is that God is one being. There is no, like I'm a human being and there's billions of other human beings like me. Okay, but what we're saying is the being of God, there is only one of those. There's only one being of God. There's nothing else like God. There's only one. And then within that being, there subsist three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So foundation number two, there are three divine persons. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Now, the these three distinct persons, it's most easily seen in Scripture at Jesus' baptism. So Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here we have the Son... In the water, we have the Spirit of God descending on the Son, and we have the Father speaking to the Son. So we have three persons all in action at the very same time. And so there are three distinct persons in the Trinity, okay? <clears throat> we'll, we'll get into this later when I talk about the common Trinity heresies, but this is an absolute direct verse against modalism. And that this is this idea that God sometimes is Father, sometimes is Son, sometimes is Holy Spirit, and He's just kind of changing back and forth. We'll talk about it more in just a second. So you have the three persons interacting with each other at the same time. So uh, another another verse to to think about these that there are three distinct persons uh, in the Trinity. John fourteen. 15 through 18 is what I'm going to read, but really all of chapter 14, um, if, you, if you're just reading John 14, you will see this language um, of the three persons and, and how, they're, how they interact. So Jesus says this, John 14, 
verses 15 through 18, if you love me, and again, just to give you context, this is when Jesus is speaking to his disciples the night before he, or the night of his betrayal. All right, so they've they've had the Last Supper, and then uh, the, Jesus is is teaching them, and he's he's about to be betrayed. He says this: If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper. This this is talking about the Holy Spirit, Hill. This other Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And so he's going so Jesus says he's going to ask the Father and the Father's going to give another helper, that is the Holy Spirit. And so again, we have the three persons of the Trinity right here together. Also, think about baptism, the baptism formula in Matthew 28:19. Jesus says, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them" in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting here is baptizing them in the name. There's one name, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's only one name. There's three persons mentioned, but one name. Name is singular. So we we hear this a lot, but we don't really think it through as deep as we as we could. So there is only one God, and there is only one name into which people are baptized, but they're baptized in the name of the three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So think about this. It, it would not make sense if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were not uh, equal in, in some sense. It would not make sense to put them on this equal plane. If only the Father was God and Jesus was just a man uh, and the Holy Spirit was just some sort of uh, energy force or whatever, it would be very strange to link those three all together in this baptismal formula. And so one way to think about this is just let's let's just assume Jehovah's Witness theology for just a second and read this verse and think about what that would mean if Jehovah's Witnesses were, if their theology was true, okay? And just a, just a reminder, for Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is basically Michael the archangel. Jesus is was created by God, by Jehovah, and then Jesus then creates everything else. And so the major problem there is that Jesus is a created being in their minds and not eternal. And the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is eternal. And so um so that's the problem. So so Jesus you could think of it as he's he's Michael the archangel um who sort of is not called Michael for a little bit. He's called Jesus and then after his crucifixion he becomes Michael the archangel again. It's more complicated than that, but that's that's a decent summary. All right. So Jesus is Michael the archangel and the Holy Spirit to for a Jehovah's Witness is not personal. It's an impersonal energy force, kind of like the force in Star Wars or gravity, okay? And so let's go back and read Matthew 28:19, but insert that theology and see if that would make any sense at all, okay? So Jesus tells his disciples, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of Michael the Archangel and an impersonal energy force. All right? And so 
So it, that would not make any sense, that you would not put an impersonal energy force on the same level as God, Jehovah, and you wouldn't put uh, a created being on the same level as Jehovah as well. And so, again, we have one name, three persons, and and I think this is a, a verse that is very, very strongly demonstrates the Trinity. Okay, so there are the Trinitarians are one monotheist. There is only one true God. Foundation number two, there are three divine persons. And then foundation number three, these three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. So again, just to remind you, there is only one God. And and, and in scripture, the, the name of the one true God is is called Yahweh or the Lord. When you see Lord in all capitals, um, that is Yahweh. Some some um, people would believe that that name, instead of pronouncing it Yahweh, it would be pronounced Jehovah. So those are talking about the same, it's the same word. There's just uh, disagreements on how it would have been pronounced in the Hebrew language, okay? And so the Lord in all caps in your Bible, Yahweh, and Jehovah are all the same, talking about the same exact word in the Hebrew language. All right, so there is only one Lord, yet all three persons are identified as the Lord or Yahweh. So that that's the key there to foundation number three. The three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Why? Because in the Bible, we are told that there is only one Lord, but then the Father is Lord, the Son is is called Lord, and the Holy Spirit is identified as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Yahweh, and and does things that only the Lord does, okay? So that's kind of the basis here. So let me show you some verses here. Uh, first off, nobody really debates on whether or not the Father is divine and, and, and fully God. Um, but John 5, 18 it says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so in a roundabout way, you can see that what's implied here is the father is the father is certainly God. And so when when Jesus says he's the son of God and, and makes God his father, then they know that what Jesus is implying is that he is equal to God. All right, so the father is, of course, God. And again, nobody really, really debates that. Now, Jesus is also called Lord. One of the easiest ways to see this is to look at verses in the Old Testament, which could only be speaking about Yahweh and see how they are quoted in the New Testament, but now they refer to Jesus, all right? Um, so uh, let, me, let me also say this. The, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word for Lord, Yahweh, in the Septuagint was the word kurios, which means Lord in Greek. But Jesus in the, in the New Testament is constantly referred to as Corios, this the same uh, word that he's that is referred to as Lord in the Old Testament. So there's there's one proof right there. But let's get back to it. So there's verses in the Old Testament that when you read them and you ask yourself, now who is this talking about? The answer would be only the Lord, the one true God. 
But that same verse is quoted in the New Testament, but it's referring to Jesus. All right, so Psalm 102.25, if you were talking to, well, well, I've done this with a Jehovah's Witness, uh, if you were talking to uh, a Jew who, who holds that the Old Testament is, is Scripture, um, if you said, uh, let me read you this verse, and who is this talking about? It says Psalm 102.25-27, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Okay? Now, if you asked a, a Jew to read this verse and tell you who, you know, who is this talking about, they would say Yahweh. The, the opening verse of this psalm, that was verses 25 and 27, the opening verse, verse 1 says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, that is, O Yahweh, let my cry come to you. So this is a this psalm is a prayer to the Lord. So it's very clear that the Lord is who is being talked about in this verse. Okay? Now, if we go to Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 through 12, it's the it's it's a quotation. It's the same verse. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. It's, it's, a, it's a direct quote from this passage in Psalm 102. But who is this talking about now? If we look up to verse 8, it tells us, it says, But of the Son, he says, and then there's a, a quote from Psalm 45. That's another example that you could use. Um, to to see how the an Old Testament verse is quoted about Jesus in the New Testament, and then he skips down to verse ten through twelve, and so this is these verses are talking about the Son, but in the Old Testament it's referring to the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is the Lord. Another example is. The question, and I've I've talked about this previously. Who did Isaiah see? In Isaiah six one, it says, "In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that is Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple." This is where the angels are saying, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. the The whole earth is full of His glory." So if you asked a Jew, who did Isaiah see, the answer would be the Lord. They saw Yahweh. But what does John tell us in his gospel? John 12, 41, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And if you look deeper in the context here, what Isaiah is, excuse me, what John is, is referring to is this exact um, time that Isaiah saw the Lord. And so, again, in the Old Testament, it's talking about the Lord. In the New Testament, it's talking about Jesus, using the same exact verses and the same situations. So Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Yahweh. Now, how else do we establish the, the deity of Jesus? We'll talk more about this in future episodes, but John 1, one in the beginning was the Word. Here, the Word is talking about the Son, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so, one way to think about this is Jesus was eternally 
with God, the, the Father. So the, the Son and the Father are eternally together, all right? And so the Word was with God, but then the next phrase, and the Word was God. And so um, some commentaries and, and so, even some translations would kind of help the reader out, and when it says, and the Word was God, it would say something like, and, and as to his nature was God. So, so the the person of the Father and the person of the Son and the person of the Holy Spirit, they all share in the divine nature. They they participate in the divine nature. It's tough to it's tough to pick. It's tough to come up with a word that um, says what I want to say. But so so sometimes it's easier to say what I don't mean. Okay. When, when we say that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share in the divine nature, participate in the divine nature, subsist is a theological term um, in the divine nature, what we are not meaning is that like, like um, if me and my two buddies had a pizza, there's one pizza and three of us, and we share the pizza, so we each get a third. That's what we're not saying. Trinitarians are not saying that. Um, it's not that the Father is one-third of the divine being. We're saying that they subsist in the divine being. So it would be accurate to say Jesus is fully God, and the Father is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. And again, this is where our our brains have a, a tough time wrapping around that, but it is you know, like I've shown in Scripture, it is that's what Scripture teaches. There's only one God, but all three persons are identified as the one Lord. Okay, the the one God. So, um, so that's John one one, John twenty twenty eight. This is doubting Thomas when he's you know he he finally sees Jesus and Jesus says, "Put your hand on my side and see the nail prints in my hands." And what does Thomas say? He he looks at Jesus and he says, "My Lord and my God." A, a Jewish boy would not have, <laughs> growing up in, in the Jewish religion uh, and, and reciting the Shema every morning, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you would not call another man my Lord and my God. This is, this is a massive statement by Thomas. Colossians 2.9, talking about Jesus, says, For in him, that is Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the fullness of deity, not one-third deity, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Titus 2.13, we have a very interesting phrase here. Uh, It says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This similar language is found in 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Both of these, where where Jesus is referred to as God and Savior, this is a, in in, uh, Greek grammar, this is called a Granville-Sharps rule. And it's basically just a grammatical rule with how the, the Greek language works, that when you have a certain structure, then both of those words refer to the same person, okay? So when when we say God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we don't split those up and say, well, uh, it's it's God and then and and also another, you know, person, the Savior, Jesus Christ, but they're different. No, what the Granville Sharps rule shows through 
you know, just as you look at Greek language, not just in, in the Bible, the way the Greek language works is it always refers, both of those words refer to the same uh, subject, I guess you could say. So the, the, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so um, both of those talk about Jesus. So Jesus is Yahweh. So remember, our, we're on foundation number three, that the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. The Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and now we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. And just a reminder, the Holy Spirit is, is a person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not just an energy force that that you get and and start doing crazy things. Um, the the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. Acts thirteen two says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, an impersonal energy force doesn't speak. But here, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit teaches and speaks. The Holy Spirit does things that personal uh, things do, that that beings with person do. So the Holy Spirit is personal, not impersonal. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Lord, the Spirit of Christ. So the Holy Spirit has the qualities of the one true God. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Psalm 139, 7, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? The Holy Spirit is omniscient, knows all things of, of, of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, knows everything God knows, okay? So the Holy Spirit is omniscient. The Holy Spirit's also involved with creation. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then Psalm 104-30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Now, remember when I was talking about Jesus being Yahweh, I showed verses in the Old Testament that were quoted that refer to Yahweh, and then in the New Testament, that same verse is quoted, but it's referring to Jesus. Well, the same can be done with the Holy Spirit. In Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So the Lord is speaking here, okay? I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay? Now, if we go down to uh, towards the end of verse 34, it says this, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So that's Jeremiah. Now, in, in Jeremiah, it's the Lord speaking, but in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is going to this this verse is quoted, but the Holy Spirit is said to be the one who is speaking. Hebrews 10, 15 through 17. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, and then here's the quote, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So again, the the Old Testament, it's the Lord. In the New Testament, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Lord. Now, another example, just to show that the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal and and is God, Um, if you have lied to the Holy Spirit, it's the same as lying to God. So in uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 shows this. So just a, a brief context here. Ananias and Sapphira, a, a lot of the Christians were selling what they have and and donating their possessions, okay? So selling it and donating it, and they were giving everything. Ananias and Sapphira said they did that, but they held some of the profits for themselves, uh, but they they were portraying to the church that they had they had sold everything and and given away everything, and so uh, Peter confronts them Acts five uh, verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So who did Ananias lie to? The Holy Spirit. In the very next verse. It says this, Acts 5, 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So in verse 3, who did Ananias lie to? The Holy Spirit. In verse 4, who did Ananias lie to? God. So the Holy Spirit is God. So that that really is the uh, just a very basic uh, again, there there are so many verses that can be used to show these three foundations of the Trinity. Number one, monotheism. There is only one God. Number two, there are three persons. And number uh, foundation number three, those three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. All right? So a lot of times when we talk about the Trinity, and I've already had to do this some today, um, St. Augustine said this, if asked to define the Trinity... We can only say that it is not this or that. So a lot of times when, it, when we talk about the, the nature and character of God, we can't fully comprehend, and so we, we just have to latch on to truth and then, and then realize, okay, this is, this is error, okay? So for instance, I, I've talked about this before, we cannot fully wrap our minds around eternity, but if, and, and God is eternal. So if someone says God came into existence 50 billion years ago, we would say, no, that is false. God is eternal. So we, we can't really understand and wrap our minds around eternity, but we can affirm the truths of, of knowing you know, what eternity means, okay, what that word means. And so a lot of times we, we, we can't fully comprehend it, but we, we can know enough to know what is error. And that's what this uh, quote by Augustine says. If asked to defend the Trinity, or excuse me, if asked to define the Trinity, we can only say that it is not this and not that. Okay? So let me just go over three, this is real quick, but three very common heresies uh, for, for the Trinity. Okay? So this is not what the Trinity is. If you reject foundation number one, that is monotheism, that there is only one true God, 
the heresy here is polytheism, that there are multiple gods. And so a Trinitarian heresy would be that um, that there are three individual gods, and they just kind of all work together all the time. They're like the perfect god team, and they always do everything that the other person wants them to do, and they're, they're always working together. And so really, we can kind of think of them as one, uh, one but they're really three gods. No, that, that is a heresy. Um, there is only one God. Now, if you reject the idea that, that that foundation number two, that there are three divine persons, a common heresy would be modalism. And honestly, a lot of Christians kind of think about God and uh, the Trinity in this way, that, well, you know, there's only one God, and sometimes He kind of acts like our Father, and then sometimes He kind of acts like uh, the Son, and, and then sometimes He kind of acts like the Holy Spirit. The the reason this is called modalism is it's kind of like God has different modes that he jumps into. Think about uh, an one actor on stage, and he's got three different masks, and he puts one his, his God the Father mask on, and he's acting like God the Father, and then he takes that mask off and puts on the God the Son mask. You, you, know, you, know, you know what I'm getting at. So that would be the wrong idea of the Trinity, and that's called modalism. And that's the one that is just easily refuted. I just don't understand why people hold to modalism uh, when we think about the baptism of Jesus. And you, 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 know, you, you have three divine persons all interacting all at the same time. And so, um, so anyway, that would be modalism. If you reject foundation number two, that there are three divine persons, uh, that's modalism. The last one, if you reject foundation number three, that the persons are co-equal and co-eternal, you will be committing subordinationism. Um, a, a common one would be Arianism. And this is the idea that uh, this is this is modern day Jehovah's Witnesses that the Father or, or they would just say Jehovah created um, the Jesus the Son and then from there it, you know Jesus created everything else and so the, this idea that Jesus is a created being that he's not co-equal and co-eternal with the Father that that would be that's called Arianism. Um, that's what the Council of Nicaea was about. There was a, a teacher, a false teacher named Arius that was was teaching this view. So there you go, there you have it, Arianism. So if you lose track, if you do not hold to the three foundations of the Trinity that are clearly taught in Scripture, then you will fall into one of these errors. Okay. All right. In closing, uh, James White likes to say that the apostles were experiential. Trinitarians. So they they experienced the Trinity. Think about this. Peter heard the voice of God the Father. He walked with Jesus and saw the glory of Jesus Christ at the transfiguration. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So the doctrine of the Trinity is, is not laid out academically for us in the New Testament, and that's because the apostles experienced the, the Trinity firsthand. Okay, in in their writing, it's almost just assumed that that there is only one God. Yet the three divine persons are are spoken of and referred to as if they each are Lord. 
Um, and so this, these three foundations are just, it's like they're assumed when you read the New Testament. So thus, Peter opens his, his letter like this, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you.